Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. I am continuing my series on American beliefs about the afterlife. Today's story is called A Future, But What Kind of Hope? A year before the illustrious American author Mark Twain died, he published his last book, an irreverent description of sea captain Elias Stormfield's long and circuitous trip to paradise. In Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven, Twain portrayed the crusty old salt hurtling around outer space on a comet for 30 years, uncertain about where he'd end up, before he at last arrived at the pearly gates. To his great disappointment, Heaven wasn't what Stormfield had expected. A year after the book came out, Twain himself had to face the same death he'd written so flippantly about. And in the popular press of the time, few speculated about the journey that his soul had embarked upon, which was usually the case with prominent people. Although he wasn't always or consistently antagonistic toward the Christian faith, he did tend to treat it lightly, and at times nurtured negative thoughts about it, especially during dark periods of loss. After all, one of his famous quotes was, Faith is believing something you know ain't true. At one time, he wrote some especially scathing things that might have incited the public had they been printed while he was alive. Since no one could write with any degree of veracity that the beloved author had gone to heaven, which was a popular component of obituaries and eulogies, most of the public utterances of his death were of a more general nature. It's highly unlikely that an American publisher would have printed his glib story of the afterlife a generation earlier. In fact, Twain actually wrote Captain Stormfield 40 years before its release. At the opening of the 20th century, however, while the United States was still overwhelmingly informed by Protestant mores and leadership, the culture was not as orthodox or homogeneous as it had been 100 or even 50 years earlier. From the period right before the Civil War until 1921, over 25 million immigrants arrived. Initially, most of the newcomers hailed from Northern and Western Europe and were largely mainstream Christian in their beliefs and customs. They did come from a variety of denominations, however. By the turn of the century, most immigrants were arriving from Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe, mostly non-Protestant areas. Catholics and Jews made up the majority of those numbers. There were stark religious differences between them and native-born Americans, many of whom considered Catholics to be sinister subordinates of the Pope. Some even considered the pontiff to be the Antichrist. Catholic immigrants brought with them long-established attitudes about heaven and hell that often were filled with medieval imagery and anxiety about mortal and venial sins. 
Jewish beliefs, on the other hand, were a mixed bag, depending upon where the person came from and what branch of Judaism they practiced. According to historian Robert Weiner, almost all traditionally Orthodox Jews, which means about half of the immigrants from Eastern Europe, still had a vague belief in heaven, in God's ultimate reward and justice for those who live just lives. Those from the European countries, most affected by the 18th century Enlightenment, had less of a longing for the afterlife and definitely did not think of it along the dramatic delineations of the Protestants. There were also other immigrants, non-European ones, who brought with them more exotic views about the afterlife. Among them were the Chinese, who arrived on the West Coast for the primary purpose of building the railroads. In spite of the perceived strangeness of their beliefs and customs, immigrants had a profound impact on the culture, even as they were being Americanized. At the Ford Motor Company, for example, they could go to school to learn English and rules of good citizenship. At the graduation ceremony, they did a play in which they dressed in their national costumes and climbed into an enormous melting pot. When they climbed back out, all of them were wearing American outfits and waving the stars and stripes. In addition, while immigrants learned the fundamentals of American Protestantism as the norm, that standard was itself changing. There had always been disputes and differences between various denominations about methods of worship, which doctrines were the most important, and how to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ in everyday life. In those debates, however, most American Protestants had at least agreed on the starting points, or the essential beliefs of faith and practice. These included the virgin birth of Christ, the exclusivity of salvation through faith in Christ alone, the doctrine of the Trinity, the authority and reliability of Scripture, and the return of Christ. At this time, however, a small number of ministers, along with some college and seminary professors, were being influenced by European ideas and calling into question fundamental aspects of Christian faith and practice. These men were led increasingly by the scientific and modern spirit of the times. They emphasized progress through reason and disdained anything suggesting the supernatural. There could be no allowances for miracles or revelation. Protestant leaders manned their posts armed for battle with their particular interpretations of the Bible and the creeds, while the laity, still standing mainly on conservative ground, watched and tried to make sense of it all. On the side of Christian orthodoxy and tradition, those from the revivalist and Calvinist camps continued to make a significant contribution to American life and thought. D.L. Moody had died in 1899, but others continued to conduct evangelistic campaigns, including R.A. Torrey and the memorable Billy Sunday. 
In the 1880s, Sunday had been a popular baseball player with the Chicago White Stockings, an outfielder whose exuberant base running and fielding delighted fans. He gave up his athletic career after being converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and he began preaching in Midwestern churches where he honed his gifts for plain speaking and theatrics rivaling those of George Whitfield. He declined several lucrative offers to return to baseball, including contracts anywhere from $400 to $2,000 per month, when the average American worker made $480 a year. The Iowa-born Sunday became America's best-known revivalist in the opening decades of the 20th century. A preacher who encouraged people to walk the sawdust trail to Christ and away from sin and hell. Far less flamboyant than Billy Sunday, B.B. Warfield also held firmly to orthodoxy from his position of leadership at Princeton Theological Seminary. Although both were Presbyterians, unlike Sunday, Warfield was no fan of revivalism believing that the movement lent itself to subjective religious experiences instead of a deep and abiding faith. He believed that the best expression of Christian faith could be found in the teachings of John Calvin and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Other leaders in American Protestantism at that time approached the Christian faith far differently. Known as theological liberals, These thinkers were chiefly Arminian. They believed humans were free agents who could choose on their own whether or not to accept God's offer of salvation. Unlike their conservative counterparts, however, liberals tended to believe that there was no original sin or natural depravity in the first place, but that people have a natural ability for unselfishness. The main reason people sin is because of such factors as a lack of education or privilege. Therefore, if people had the moral example of Jesus to follow, as well as ample opportunities for education and personal advancement, there would be no more sin. There were two kinds of liberals at the turn of the century, the evangelical liberals and the modernist liberals. The latter group was much smaller and more radical, believing that religion was a human invention and the Bible a great book among many others like it. In such a system, there was little room for heaven and hell, nor was there any need, they said, to promote Christianity as being superior to other religions. Yet it was the other set of liberals, the so-called evangelical ones, who had the most influence on American thought in their day, mostly because they spoke in a non-threatening, more palatable way than the more strident and iconoclastic modernist liberals. The chief spokesman for evangelical liberalism was the Baptist pastor Walter Rauschenbusch, the son of a theologically orthodox German pastor who taught at Rochester Theological Seminary. Rauschenbusch's own view of Christianity began to diverge from the teachings of his youth when he encountered the challenges of European-style 
higher criticism. He came to believe that the kingdom of God was not so much about saving people's souls so they could go to heaven, as it was a matter of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. He held that Jesus did not die for the sins of the world in a substitutionary atonement, but that he died instead to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. An essential element of the liberalism he championed came to be known as the social gospel. Christians from earlier eras had made substantial inroads and efforts at societal reform, but this was different. Its goal was to transform society, not to save individual souls, which Rauschenbusch considered the height of human selfishness. Along with him was Russell Conwell, a theological liberal and an optimist who, unlike Rauschenbusch, encouraged Christians to live to the best of their potential to advance themselves and not just God's kingdom. He thought that by pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, a person could become wealthy and that abundance was a sign of God's approval. He once said, I say that you ought to get rich. It is your duty to get rich. The theological liberals who ushered in the 20th century largely anticipated a golden era, free of the embarrassing theatrics of revivalists and the beliefs of unsophisticated hayseeds who didn't know any better than to believe in things like the virgin birth, Jonah and the whale, individual salvation, and a literal heaven and hell. They believed that if they could just get people to abandon such superstitious nonsense and embrace scientific and modern social principles while living out the golden rule, there would be no more poverty or disease, hunger or ignorance, violence or war. People's needs would then be met, and they would live harmoniously with others. They believed the country, indeed all of humanity, was standing on the brink of a new epoch, a Christian century, when the old would pass and the new era of God's kingdom on earth would arrive. Historian Martin Marty observed, the social Christians were vulnerable theologically, as innovators often are. The tragic dimensions of human existence were neglected in favor of the pervasive progressivism of the era. No one could have foreseen just how tragic those human dimensions were, or how even the greatest technological advances could not save mankind from itself. Thank you for joining me for Inspiration from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.